Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 586 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, January the 13th, 2011. We've got a great show today because I have the uh, the infamous, as he called himself when I called, tried to call him famous, the infamous David Crawford standing by on the line to discuss the release, in hard copy anyway, of his book Lights Out. Lights Out was actually written uh, quite a number of years ago, done over a series of years. You'll hear the story of how it evolved today, but it was just recently in December released in a hard copy. I've recommended it highly to the audience. Today you're going to hear from David and you're going to hear why. I just think it's an outstanding book. We're going to talk about the book some, but I'm going to also quiz David about his own prepping, what he preps for, why he preps, how he preps, homesteading activity, stuff like that. Get to know the author a little bit more because I think one of the cool things about David Crawford is unlike a lot of authors out there writing in this genre... You know, they just look at it and they, uh, they see the, the opportunity because everybody's talking about prepping in disasters and emergencies. So they, David lives, lives the life, you know, a lot like James Rawls in his book Patriots. That's out there in the, in the, a little bit of Hollywood stuff going on too. But James actually lives on his retreat and he's a, he's a survivalist in the, the traditional living somewhere out in the, in the middle of nowhere out in the western states thing. And David's more like a lot of you guys that are, you know, listening to this show every day. He's sitting down there in South Texas, living a life out in suburbia, a lot like the rest of us, but he's a prepper. So I think it'll be great to hear from him today. Before I bring David on, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is HarvestEating.com. That's Chef Keith Snow. Chef was uh, Chef Snow was on the uh, show before talking about uh, surviving Thanksgiving, gave us great tips on cooking a great Thanksgiving meal. I've also had him on the show to talk about cooking with food out of your backyard. I've been talking to him off air, uh, and we're going to have him come back on for an interview probably sometime before the month ends. There's a lot of great stuff that, that uh, Chef Keith shares with us. He's also stepped up as a sponsor to the show. He has a great website, a great membership program. Recommend you get on over to HarvestEating.com. Check out his great blog, his videos, all that good stuff. If you're going to grow that food in your backyard, if you're going to get those fresh ingredients we talk about all the time from the local farmer's market and local growers and that you know antibiotic-free meat and all the other stuff that goes with it, you might as well learn how to cook with it, too. So check out HarvestEating.com. Next up today, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont with Silver and Goldshop.com. I keep hearing from everybody that deals with this lady just going, man, she's so great. She takes care of us. Wonderful service, wonderful selection, great pricing. Always treats people fairly and always goes out of her way to make sure people feel that way. Um, that's the kind of person I want to do business with, and that's why they're a sponsor. Remember, I believe that silver and gold belong as part of your investment portfolio. It's certainly part of mine. I think when you have a birthday coming up for some young kids or something, other than some plastic crap from China, why not consider getting them a good old-fashioned silver dollar? 
put that into their little hand, tell them to have their mom or dad, or if you're their mom or dad, help them put it away, talk about lasting value, and talk about tying lasting value and growth in value over time to what it's like to grow up and to be able to look one day back and remember that that is something that held its value and increased in value over time. And for your personal investing, she has some really cool innovative stuff as well. So check out silverandgoldshop.com. Uh, next up, remember to connect with us, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Uh, we are at facebook.com forward slash survival podcasting and facebook.com forward slash survival podcasting. On uh, Twitter, I am the survival pod C because I couldn't fit survival podcast or survival podcasting and somebody else already had it. So I am the survival pod C on Twitter and on YouTube, I am YouTube user survival podcasting. ING. Um, all of those are available on the website. You can connect with us there. Definitely connect on YouTube. Subscribe to our channel. A lot of great stuff coming out. Put out an awesome video yesterday you guys are going to want to check out today about the debt ceiling and the myths around the monetary system with the debt ceiling and everybody debating, do we raise the debt ceiling or not? They're going to do it. That video tells you why, and it's one you're going to want to share with folks. And I'll do a lot of practical videos in the coming year, gardening, homesteading, uh, storing stuff, you name it, just like we've always done. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. And I'll be giving away a free, actually two free MSBs today and two every day for the next five days, along with a free copy of David's book. You have to wait till the end of the show today to hear how to, to, to win that. Don't skip ahead, though. I'm not going to do... Uh, Uh, response numbers. We're just going to do a random drawing with everybody that enters throughout the day. Uh, but we are going to be giving away MSB as well. But if you don't win one, hey, consider supporting the show. 20 cents an episode. All right, folks, as I said in the housekeeping segment, we are uh, really, uh, I feel blessed to have David Crawford here with us today, who is uh, best known for his uh, work on the, uh, as he calls it, doom or porn novel, uh, Lights Out. But David's also very well known in a, in a, a lot of uh, forums uh, for helping people with uh, figuring out what they're going to do with their prepping overall. So he's a good guy, good member of the community, done a lot to evangelize the subject of being prepared uh, for everything from the uh, mundane to the insane. So, hey, David, thanks for joining us today on the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jack. I really appreciate it. So, um, David, uh, let's, well, I want to talk a lot about your book today, obviously, but I want to maybe let people understand how, you know, your book is, is, is an awesome book, but it's also a huge book. I mean, I ordered the hard copy that finally came out, and I could replace, uh, you know, instead of having the revolver in my nightstand, I could probably replace it with that book and just beat somebody to death with it. It's a huge piece of work, and it took a lot of time and a lot of effort What led you into a place where you decided you're going to write this book and extend that kind of effort into it? You know, Jack, it, it really started back when I was when I was pretty young. I uh, I read a story by Jack London called "To Build a Fire," and um, it really lit a fire in me. And um, I always liked you know survival type stories, which that that one was. Um, And then I got into high school, and we were we were made to read um, *A Last Babylon* by Pat Frank, which is I'm sure you've probably read it, and, and most of your readers have too. And it's it's an excellent, excellent novel that was lit, written back in the late '50s, early '60s uh, about a nuclear war strike. And I was just always impressed with that story and how community and friends and neighbors had to come together. So fast forward up to about 98, 
and a buddy of mine started talking to me about Y2K. And, you know, I got on the Internet and started reading and reading and reading. And, and um, you know, the more I could find out, the more I looked, you know, it looked like a real threat. Um, fortunately for us, I think I think the survival community kind of almost brought this to the forefront and forced companies to go in and and fix these things where where it really became a non-issue. But I got involved in survival then, you know, even more. Before that, I had just put some things back. You know, I've gone from the you know all the stages where you know I was just going to walk out in the woods with a backpack. You know, and live, and you know, as you as you start, <laughs> that doesn't work out real well, right? <laughs> right, exactly. You know, and you start evolving as um, you know in this. So um, I was reading, and then I read uh, James Wesley Rawls' novel *Patriots*, and of course, that has just a lot of information in it, just a whole lot. Um, but the guys in there were were very fortunate that they had prepared before. So, you know, Y2K came and went, um, and I was reading fiction online. I was finding fiction online because I just loved it so much, and there just weren't, you know, I'd read all the the Lucifer's Hammer and, you know, the Swan Songs and, you know, everything I could find, the Postman, just all kinds of things. So I was getting online and finding these books, and, I found a place, uh, Frugal Squirrels, and he had actually a fiction forum, and it was the first one I ever found. And there were a couple of real good stories on there, and there was one that I just loved called Pax Americana by a man, um, the guy's handles were A Gray Man and Desert Doc. And so I started reading this, and then, you know, you get a chapter up, posted up, you know, and then there's nothing for a month, and you're just, like, craving this stuff. It's like crack almost, I guess. I don't know. I've never done crack. But um, so I started thinking, you know, maybe I could write a story. And so um, I sat down and, you know, banged out the first chapter and posted it online, and, you know, and about three people were like, oh, that's good. That's good. So, you know, I did another chapter and then another chapter, and um, over the course of three years, I wrote the 75 chapters. So that, That's pretty amazing. And I, I don't know if you know this or not. We have, I'd say, a good half dozen members in our forum today that are doing exactly what you did. And I can tell you that each one of them has been inspired by the fact that that's how you uh, brought your book out. And they're doing the same type of thing, you know, with their own spin and their own storylines and their own plot lines. But the concept of kind of doing it in a forum and bringing it out, you know, a few a little bit at a time and getting people hooked on it, um, you really – I don't think you're the first person that did it, but you've really inspired a lot of people to do that. And I don't, like I said, I don't know if you know that's going on on our forum, but uh, I can tell you you're kind of the seed of that, and that's pretty cool. Um your uh, your book itself, you know, you mentioned James Rawls's book, which is a great book. Uh, it's it certainly in, in many ways, and but he kind of tried to write, I think, like a technical manual written like a novel. So there's a lot of very specific, you know, part number information in there and all. And, and your book's way different. It's much more of the story itself. Uh, teaches a lot of lessons, but one of the big differences I saw with your book and not just his book, but a lot of books is. A lot of these uh, Doomer porn books, right, they, the, the disaster hits, and it's catastrophe the next day. 
right? It's, it's, it's everything's in flames 48 hours later. You showed this kind of gradual spiral where things went from, uh, hairy to bad to worse to really bad. Is there a reason you took that approach? Did it just seem more logical of a progression to you or was it just how it came about? I mean, it, I personally think it's a much more realistic look uh, than some of the other works in the genre, but what what made you take that approach? I, I just think it's human nature. Um, you know, people are, are, you know, tend to be hopeful. You know, you look at any kind of disaster that happens or like, you know, when the lights went out on the East Coast, you know, everybody just walked home. You know, I can tell you for a fact that's what happened. I can tell you for a fact that's what happened because I was sitting in the middle of Manhattan the day that that happened. Really? Yep. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I, I actually had some cash on me, so I bought a beer from a vendor and watched everybody walk home. Right. And, <laughs> and people just don't, you know. I mean, I think as long as people have hope, you know, they hope for the best. And I think that's human nature. And you know, not that there's not a small percentage of our society that you know, takes advantage at the first opportunity, but people as a whole don't. But then as people lose hope, that's when things start going downhill. Absolutely. So the less hope, the more doom. And the less hope, the more we will see the worst of humanity. And the more hope, no matter how bad things get, the more we'll see people try to help each other. That's what you're saying. I believe so, yes. So can you give kind of people without, you know, giving away too much if they haven't read the book yet, kind of what is the storyline? What's the, the basic plot line of Lights Out? Even though I know what it is, some of our folks don't. Um, there's some type of event that knocks out the lights, you know, communications, and most of the transportation over the West. Um and I really chose this. I know I'm deviating from the question here. I really chose this as worst-case scenario to be able to show things. Um, you know, I don't really think that, that this scenario is necessarily going to happen, but by being able to use a, a really, like, worst-case scenario, it, it lets us show a lot of different facets of being prepared. So the lights go out. There's a guy that's at work, you know, he's with his friends and stuff, and they're trying to figure out, you know, how they're going to get home because most of the cars won't run. So, you know, they work that out. The guy gets home, you know, and he, he just has to start banding his neighbors together. He realizes that he can't do it by himself. So, you know, he starts getting his neighbors together, and then, you know, they kind of, People start coming, and people bring their relatives, and which which I believe people would. So this community just builds up and really becomes a big, almost a big family or a big tribe. And as that you know uh, that that we we, we get we get there, what types of things? Like I said, I don't want you to give away the whole book or anything, but. What types of things do these these folks have to deal with? Kind of take us a little bit through, you know, some some kind of wet the wet the, the the mouth of the potential reader out there. What are some of the things that these guys end up having to deal with, and how do they deal with them? Um, they have to deal. You know, one of the early things they have to deal with is is how to get water, because um, these people were kind of out in the 
in the suburbs or even almost almost rural, just outside of the city, but they're all on water wells. Well, the pumps for the water wells all run on electricity, so they have to figure out how to get water for the whole community. You know, um, food. You know, if you go to most people's houses, you know, they've got three or four days' worth of food. And so, you know, they have to figure out how to how to deal with that. And there's no transportation, even though in the story the grocery stores are open, you know, they have to figure out how to get people to the grocery stores. You know, and then and then as things start to break down, there gets to be lawlessness. Well, you know, you can't just there's no communications, you can't just pick up the phone and dial nine one one. So they have to learn how to deal with those situations on their own. Very cool. And like you have like some really colorful characters in here. You got like this guy that that you know, Gunny's this old old Marine Corps sergeant, and uh you've got a lot of other great characters in it that are, you know, main characters, sideline characters and all. From an earlier interview I heard you, you, you do on this, they don't really come from individuals. You've kind of drawn them as just like a snapshot of society. Uh, it, you know, like you said, like everybody knows that one old Marine, right? Right. Right. Um, yeah, the, the, most of them are like just culminations of personality traits that, that I've seen in per- people over the years. But... Yeah, like I said, we, we all know that old grizzled veteran and, and, you know, he's talking about the way it used to be and, and he has all this information and, and, you know, a lot of times those guys just, just want somebody to listen to them and stuff. And, and here's a situation where this guy actually goes from just kind of being a loner to becoming an integral part of this community. And uh, I got a question for you. When I read one of the very first uh, editions of your book that I ever got my hands on, um, there was a – what caused this event was uh, an intentional attack using nuclear weapons with a high-altitude uh, discharge. And when I got your hardcover book, just kind of left it to me to figure out what caused lights to go out. Uh, unless I haven't got that far in the hard copy yet and you've made some changes or something. The reason you made that change is it just because you don't really want to focus on the event and you wanted to focus more about the, uh, the result or, you know, why did you make that change? I, uh, I felt like the book was better without the prologue. I actually wrote the prologue probably about two years in to writing the story. And people kept asking me, you know, well, what made this happen? What made this happen? What made this happen? And I felt like at that time that I needed to give them an explanation. But then once they got the explanation, it didn't really satisfy their curiosity anyway. And the book is written, you know, from a single viewpoint, the viewpoint of the main character. So I wanted to keep it where if the main character didn't know what happened, you can't know what happened. So it puts you more in his shoes and makes you look at things from his perspective. And now I've gone and done ruined it and told everybody about the prologue. So you guys forget about the prologue because it's, uh, it's David's universe he created, and, and now the creator of the universe says that that did not happen. So you're just like the main character. You don't know what happened. And I, I think it's a good call, too, because I think there's a lot of things 
that could come, like you said, this is not like your number one scenario of what can go wrong, uh, but it's a big one if it happens. And there's a lot of things that could cause that. High altitude nuclear burst with an EMP definitely could cause it. Our electrical grid, as far as I know, is kind of held together with duct tape in, in modern technology terms. And so there's a lot of weaknesses and vulnerabilities there. It could be a, a hacking. They're, they've shown that hackers could actually shut down the grid. And Sun could do this. I mean, it is a real, you know, even though it's not like the most probable event, it's what you call a, a, a low probability, high impact event, right? Correct. Correct. You know, um, people that have been doing this for a while oftentimes like to look at worst-case scenarios and put themselves in worst-case scenarios. So, you know, a lot of times you hear the guys, you know, joking about zombies. And nobody really believes that we're going to have zombies. Well, maybe a few people do, but most of us don't. But the point is, is if you're ready for zombies, you're pretty much ready for anything. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And believe it or not, I've actually had a few like listeners that are kind of people that find the show that come from outside of the, the, the general community. And if we bring up a few topics about zombies once in a while, you forget that there's people that aren't kind of in on the code words, so to speak, like, you know, Bob or, or, or Bull or whatever. And, and you say zombies, and I've had a few people email me and go, you people don't really believe in zombies, do you? I'm like, no, we don't really. And, and except explain just what you did. So, this is kind of like an electrical zombie, right? The electrical zombie has wiped everything out. Um, give people I, – I, I'm not going to talk about what happens because I, I only want you to let as much out to the person who hasn't read it yet uh, decide how much you leave out. But I kind of like you – give people a feeling for how bad it actually gets because the further we go, it starts to get to be some pretty dramatic things and, in my opinion, some pretty realistic scenarios. Um. You know, things go from um, the first the first encounter the, that the main character has is really just a couple of guys trying to carjack him in um, the parking lot at the grocery store is is all that all that happens. And um, you know, toward the end of the book, there are actual gangs, some of which have been you know trained by um, people that 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 have training maybe from the military or whatever. You know, we've all heard the, the stories about the gang members, you know, sending people to the Army to get training and stuff. And, you know, there's actually gangs of over 100 people that that go and, and attack communities or homes or, or whatever to steal, you know, anything that they have just to live. And I don't think if we ever had this kind of a breakdown, that's at all beyond uh, what's what's possible. In fact, I see it as more possible than some of the other works in the genre where, you know, freedom fighters are fighting off the largest army in the world or something like that. Uh, to me, that type of thing right there, because I don't know, my experience has been this. 95 to 98% of people that I meet are good, decent hard-working people that will do whatever they can to try to help their fellow man, which leaves me somewhere between 3 to 5% of society, and I don't care if it's a soldier, a police officer, um, you know, or a, a priest. There's that, that small segment of society, Hell's Angels called it the 2%, and, and that 2% is dangerous. And what keeps a lid on that 2% is the rest of us. And the, 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 the less cohesion we have and the less stability we have, the more that 2% can grow and infect and attack. 
And, and I think that the scenarios that you play out in there, I mean, there's some, we call it Hollywood in there. There's a little bit of Hollywood in any good story. But I, I find it, folks, if you haven't read it yet, you need to read David's book because it's, to me, it's, it, it's, it's things that all could happen. It's like we say, you know, we say with the zombies, it's not the most likely thing. And I think some of the stuff in Lights Out is far more likely than zombies attacking. But it can get you thinking on a different level. Uh, it'll take you a little bit into the dark side. Um, and, and it really will make you dig down and say to yourself, have I done enough? And I think a lot of the things that you bring out in Lights Out could happen with a major pandemic, an economic collapse. Um, a war. I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of things that could reduce society to that level, and you've just chosen one particular outlet. And when you, you know, I think you've kind of said this already, but when you're ge in general prepping for your own needs, you don't do this because you're worried about the lights going out, do you? You do it because you're worried about things going wrong for whatever reason. That's correct. Absolutely. It's, you know, The, the cause really is not not what we need to be concerned about. It's the effects that we need to be concerned about and be ready for. If if you start concentrating too much, I think on the cause, you know, you may miss the boat. I completely agree. I mean, that's why we always talk about disaster commonality and, and your needs. You know, your 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 food, your water, your housing, your security, and your energy. Those are your, your five survival needs. And you go take a wilderness course, they call energy fire. But other than that, they give you those five needs the same dadgone way. And um, I, I kind of like to shift a little bit now. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what you do for, for your prepping. And kind of, you know, even sticking with the fact that you wrote the book, you were telling me as we were talking before we got into the interview, do you kind of see it as our place as, as people that are living this lifestyle is to, Share what we have with others and kind of evangelize, right? Absolutely. I call it, I call it spreading the gospel. You know, I believe that it's our job as preppers. And this is really the whole reason I wrote the book was to get, like, a, you know, we talked about Rawls's book some, and, and it's a great book. You know, the, the, the story is good. You know, the information in there can become invaluable. Um, if you're, if you're really trying to do this, But it's not a book that the everyday guy off the street would read. He would, you know, he would get a few pages into it and just throw it away. It's a book for preppers written by a prepper. I wanted to try to write something that the average Joe would pick up and read and that hopefully it would make him go, hmm, you know, maybe it might not be a bad idea to keep a little bit of food at home or have some kind of water filter or, you know, that's, that's what I wanted to do. And I really feel like that that's our job is to, you know, spread that gospel and try to get people on board. Sometimes as preppers, we get too worried about our own OPSEC because we don't want to hear, you know, we've all heard this. Well, you know, if something bad happens, I'm coming to your house. And that, that is something that we have to be concerned with. But by the same token, you know, we need to get these people where they have their own stuff so they can stay at their own house. Yeah, I completely agree, David. And what I'd even add to that is, you know what? I would love it if I could get my neighborhood to the point where if something bad happened, people did come to my house, but not looking for a handout, but to come to my house or I go to their house or we meet at somebody else's house to decide how are we going to take care of things. 
And, and I do think that you're absolutely right because I think, and this is why I've been streaming this message about, you know, yeah, there's some place for OPSEC, but, but hiding who and what you are completely and not talking to people about it is self-destructive because the more people we get to prepare, if we ever have a major calamity, even on a regional level in our particular, you know, region, um, the more people that are prepared, the better off we are as preppers ourselves, right? Absolutely. That's very true. You know, one thing, though, we have to be cautious about is overwhelming these people with too much stuff at one time. When you're trying to get somebody on board, you know, if you start talking about, well, you know, you got to have a garden and, you know, you got to have, you know, three years' worth of food and you got to have non-hybrid seeds and, you know, you got to have, you know, all this stuff, you know, people will get overwhelmed and they'll just shut down and they won't do anything. So one thing I really stress is, is you know, try to get them to, you know, prepare in threes. Try to get them to get three days' worth of food in the house. It's just put back that they don't touch except for emergency or except when it needs to be rotated. And then when they get that, talk to them, get them to three weeks. And then when they get that, get them to three months. Because, you know, three months worth of food will take people a long ways. Um, you know, there's, there's really, it's really going to have to be a bad situation if you need more than three months worth of prep. You know, and, and what I, I can't remember who, I, I think it was called the Down in the Hills Survival Blog. It was some blogger back when I first started. He wrote this line, and I'd love to hear what you would think of it. And it was written in kind of country boy language, you know. And it was like he had C written at the end of it, you know, like, like yes, but like, you know, you visually look at it. He, he was like, if you got food for the next few days, finding more is easy, C. And if you ain't got food for the next few days, finding any at all is hard. And it, I mean, what you're saying with three months, if you got three months worth of food, even if you're going to need four, well, I got three months, so I don't have to worry about eating to find that fourth month with foraging, with barter, with whatever, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, just just think about how you can get people, you know, on board. Because, like you said, Jack, the more people that are prepared, the better off we all are. Yeah, I completely agree. And, like, you were talking about starting out with three days. And I have people all the time that email me or call in the line and they say, well, I'm trying to get my family to do this, but they're sheep, you know, and, and, you know, some people think that term's derogatory, but there's a lot of society out there that they just do whatever they're told. And I say, well, great, they're sheep. Then tell them that the government says they're supposed to have three days. So they can be sheep and get to three days, right? Exactly. Exactly. And then once they start seeing the wisdom in doing this stuff, they'll, you know, it, 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 it becomes something that they want to do. Instead of just doing it to get you off their back, they start seeing the wisdom in it, and they will do it themselves. Do you think it's empowering? Do you think that's part of what it is? Like, it becomes addictive in a way. Like, all of a sudden, I, I realize, like, I can take care of myself for three days, and that feels good. So, hell, why not three weeks? You know, I, I think that's a big part of it, and, and it brings people around. Um, you know, it's, it's the same with, with almost like a, a concealed carry permit where a guy, you know, he doesn't get one you know, to go out and play John Wayne or do whatever, but all of a sudden he realizes that, you know, like the saying goes, you know, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away.
So all of a sudden, if I have a concealed weapon, you know, I'm able to to handle that situation for myself, and I don't have to be at the mercy of whatever's happening or whatever the police response time at my area tends to be. You know, and I think there's that's a beautiful analogy because the other thing I've noticed is God decides he wants a concealed carry permit. So um, hopefully he's got some kind of a mentor with firearms and basic firearm safety and that. But in any state that does it, you're going to have to go take a course. So they go take the basic course. But that course is basically making sure that you know how your gun works and you can hit a target at like seven feet without endangering the person that's ten feet away from the target. Um, and th- But a lot of times people start carrying that weapon and they start to feel that empowerment. And what's the next thing they do? They go out and they start taking firearms training courses for real-world stuff. Like, you know, you mentioned to me that it would be a great idea for anybody to go train with James Jaeger. Well, people start taking those kind of, uh, of training courses a lot of times after they actually start carrying that weapon because in their head they start playing the scenario, well, yeah, I'm armed. But if somebody comes in and starts shooting, do I really know what to do? And I think the same thing happens with any kind of prepping. Once you take the first step, all of a sudden you're like, huh, well, yeah, I'm good for three days now, but what if it's a week? What if it's two weeks? What if I'm like those people on TV you know, last year in, right here in the United States where they had an ice storm and they were without electricity for three weeks? Yes, you're absolutely right. And training is so important. You know, uh, Jeff Cooper said a long time ago that um, buying a rifle no more makes you a rifleman than buying a piano makes you a pianist. I love that. I never knew he said that. That's beautiful. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, you need you need to get training. And, and I can tell you, Jack, from my own experience, you know, I've been shooting, you know, 27, 28 years. You know, and I'd always see guys on the forum about, you know, have you gone to school? Have you gone to school? Have you gone and taken a training class? And and it always irritated me just a little bit, you know, that they were kind of coming across holier than now or whatever, or it seemed that way to me. But but deep down, I knew they were probably right. I knew I probably needed some training or whatever. Um, but you know what? Until I actually took some and and thank God for James Yeager. He actually read the book online and um, called me up and uh, offered to uh, let me come to a class. And I went to a class, and it was just, I mean, it's like my eyes were opened. I didn't, I, I didn't realize what I didn't know. I didn't know that I didn't know. And then once I knew that I didn't know, you just want more and more and more. And I'm a big gun guy. I, you know, I just, you know, I love firearms. I love shooting. I love hunting, everything. But once I did that, I stopped buying firearms and I started going to firearms classes. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's absolutely words of wisdom there. Let's 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 chat about some other things to do with prepping. I just get your opinions on some subjects that are just real common in the prepper community. What's your opinion on debt? And and is that is it a prep to uh, to say that you you know you got to eliminate debt? Is that a legitimate prep or or people that say it are they just uh, like people like me that say that? Are we nuts or does it really help you out in a disaster to be debt free? Absolutely, it helps you to be debt free. Um, you know, I, credit card debt is really bad. You know, in my opinion, it really you know I mean it 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 just 
consumes you sometimes. I personally don't feel like, though, that, you know, a mortgage is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's better if you can go buy a house. But I tell people, you know, if you're living, you know, if, if your plan is to bug out for every scenario, then you need to bug out now. Is what oh, I, I completely so, agree with that. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you need to take a mortgage on to be able to get your family to a place that, that's more than likely going to be safe where you don't have to bug out, you know, at the drop of a hat, then, then I tell people to do that. You know, um, you know, you and I and Dave Ramsey, then we agree on that one that, that, that is one of the few good places where people, at the consumer level to leverage debt. I mean, I have a completely different opinion of debt in a business than I do in the, in the daily life of a person. It's a, it's a business tool on some levels. Um, and I'm totally with you on the credit card debt and I'm even okay with the person has to take some vehicle debt. I'm just not a big believer in we finance our vehicles for six years. We finance our houses for 30 years and we make the minimum payment. And I do believe it probably makes sense to work where and as you can to free yourself from that bondage as soon as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely it does. And, you know, I, I, I'm with you on the vehicles. You know, I try to tell people, you know, don't go out and buy a brand-new truck. You know, go find a good used two-year-old truck because you can buy it for, you know, half to two-thirds of what the new one's going to cost you. And there's a bunch of them out there right now. I mean, people are hurt, and they're dumping them. Yes, they are. And, you know, you can find good used vehicles and stuff where where maybe you can only finance them for three years or you can do the payment where it's almost a joke, you know. Um, you know, somebody has a $250 car payment. Well, you know, you're going to be able to probably make that payment. If you're trying to pay $800 on a car, you know, that can get tough if you're making a, you know, a mortgage payment or whatever. So, so, you know, don't go out and, and mortgage yourself up to the hilt. The idea is to be able to, you know, if something happened, if you're a two-family income, you know, you really should be able to pay everything that you got to have. You know, I'm not talking about the cell phones and the cable. That can, that can go if one of the jobs goes. But you should be able to pay everything you have on that one salary. I absolutely agree. What about water? What are some of the steps you've kind of taken to make sure that you're able to provide water if we have a failure with that system? I mean, it is probably the most important commodity that exists. We can go like a lot longer than three days. They always say the rule of threes is, you know, or three weeks without food. People have made it longer if they've had to on hunger strike. They don't do real well, but I mean, two, three days without water, we're dead. So what do you do to ensure your water supply? Well, the first thing I do because I'm on a I'm on a community water supply. Um, you know, if if you have a well and have a way to pump water, that's that's great. But you know, most of us don't. So you know, I have I have water stored in like um, these blue 55 gallon drums, and I have enough to get us through. You know, probably about six weeks, and then after that, I have a a, a big Berkey water filter and I live about a mile from a lake. So if I had to, I could hike over there, get water, pour it in the big Berkey, and um, and we could keep going that way. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty similar to what I've done. I, my, I, I've been telling folks for a long time, Berkey probably makes the most uh, cost-effective water filters 
on the market today. They're not cheap when you buy them, but they are low cost when you look at running them for five years, ten years or more. Um, and I, I don't know if you do, I always keep extra filters as well for them. Uh, you can filter an awful lot of water with one set of filters there. What about food? I mean, you know, there, there's always the debate, uh, beans and, uh, beans and rice or MREs and, uh, store what you eat, what you store. What kind of approach have you taken to your food storage? Um, I take kind of a layered approach with that. I have a few MREs because they're great to just, you know, throw in the truck or whatever because you don't have to cook them or whatever. But, you know, you're not going to want to eat MREs more than a couple of three days in a row. Um, after that, we have um, – I have some mountain house food stored that all you have to do is boil water. And and the food's actually pretty good. Um, I, I'm always after my kids because they'll go in and raid my stash, you know, to get something to eat, and they'll cook up a, a pouch of mountain house. So, you know, I have to stay after them about that. Um, and, and we have enough of that for, for about 14 days. And then after that, mostly what we have is dried and canned, canned goods. Um, and we just, like you said, um, we try to store what we eat and eat what we store. And, um, you know, the new food goes in the back. And, you know, the oldest food comes up. And we just try to keep it rotated like that. Um, Beans and rice are great because you can, you know, you can keep a bunch of it. And, um, you know, we've got a couple of relatives that just don't want to do anything. And I tell them, well, I got you covered. But, you know, you're going to get awfully bored eating your beans and rice when the rest of us are eating other stuff. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that people that are worried about, well, what about this relative or whatever, they won't do anything. Beans and rice are cheap. It's much easier to feed them than to tell them to go away hungry, but you don't have to feed them well. And, I mean, you can stock up. I mean, you're more, I think, the average American with any kind of reasonable income, you're going to be more limited with space than finance when it comes to storing stuff like that. And uh, I think it's important that we put a lot of variety in our storage And we do rotate through it and we do use it, but there's nothing wrong with having that extra insurance of some items like that. Um, kind of drawn from the book, what are your thoughts on self-defense? I know that your main character is a martial artist in the book. I know from conversations with you that you've, uh, you, you study martial arts yourself. What are your thoughts on basic self-defense, you know, other than firearms training? Well, you know, I People talk about self-defense is, is a God-given right. I believe that self-defense is a God-given responsibility, you know, um, especially, you know, for our families and stuff. It's, it's, it's our job to take care of them. You know, it's great if the police are there, you know, can show up on time, but, you know, many times they don't. And you hear people say all the time, you know, the police are there to, you know, take the pictures and haul away the body. And draw that little chalk guy around there, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, so, you know, I believe we're responsible for that. And and I really try to encourage people, obviously, to to get involved in the martial arts. I'll, I'll tell you a funny little story of how I got involved. Well, first off, I became interested a long time ago when uh, the Green Hornet was on TV, and this is probably before your time, Jack, and now I'm kind of giving away my age here. But, um, you know, Bruce Lee was on that as Kato, and nobody cared. You know, none of us kids, when we would go outside and play Green Hornet, 
Nobody wanted to be the Green Hornet. Everybody wanted to be Kato. So um, I became interested in, in the martial arts there, and uh, but just just never never did happen that I could get you know that I could get involved. So um, my son's about eight years old, and he comes home from school one day with this little half sheet pink papered deal about karate, and he wanted to do it. And so, of course, his sister had to do it, too. So we started taking him to karate. And I would take him to karate, and I'd sit in the corner, and I'd always take, you know, one of my books to read. And uh, I'd read while they do karate and stuff. So um, I sat there for, I don't know, probably a year and a half. And, again, I figured out, you know what? I could probably do this. So I started doing it, and just I fell in love with teaching the kids. So um, that's how I got involved. But it's been really good for me. It's kept me in shape. You know, I'm in better shape now at 50 than I was at 35. Um, it's it's really a wonderful thing. And, and it's it's also empowering to know that, you know, I mean, I'm no Chuck Norris or whatever, and bullets don't bounce off of me as far as I know. I don't really want to test that out either. But, um, you know, it's nice to know that, that you've learned how to handle yourself. And um, people would often ask me, you know, well, you know, you carry a gun. What do you need karate for? I go, well, it's to kick them off long enough to be able to, to skin my hog leg. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Now, I mean, the other side of that is one thing that we have to be aware of when we carry a weapon is in any fight that we're involved in, there'll be a gun because we brought it. Even if the bad guy doesn't have a gun, if he just has a knife or just using his hands, and the minute you go to deploy that weapon, if you're at, at the close end of critical distance, you're three meters or less, you're less than one second from contact with that bad guy. And if you don't know how to handle yourself, that weapon that you've brought for self-defense can become something that's turned on you, and once it's taken from you, you've now wanted to help others and now you've put them at greater risk. And I don't think a lot of people really think about that when they go around carrying a weapon, the, the re realization that wherever I go, if there's a conflict, it's going to involve a firearm. And the other side, because there's the empowering side, but there's also, like you talk about, the responsibility side of that. And even if you're not you know, Chuck Norris or Bruce Lee, there's still a certain amount of, of just having the confidence in the way you carry yourself and the ability to maybe not even if there's people that no matter how skilled you are, they're big enough or strong enough. You know, there's probably one guy in the world that won't lose a fight to anybody else and everybody else has him to worry about. And just being able to extract yourself so that you can deploy if you have to, God forbid, lethal force is got to be a huge thing. And would you say you carry yourself differently too? I mean, Don't you think that criminals kind of make a decision on who they're going to victimize based on things like body language and confidence and stuff like that? Oh, that, that's been shown in study after study that, that that happens. And absolutely, you know, if, if you look feeble or you look, you know, scared or whatever, you much more open yourself up to being attacked than if you're walking with your head up, you know, on a swivel, looking around, knowing what's going on around you and stuff. Um, that's just been proven more, many, many times. Another thing I want to ask you about, we're getting kind of close to the end here, is 
you actually do some homesteading and stuff like I talk about all the time. I know I talked to you several years ago when I was talking to you about your book when it was just still in, in, in a PDF format, and you were saying, hold on, I got to get the chickens in a chicken house. So, you know, you make that part of your life. Can you tell folks what you do and, and why you think that's important? Well, we, um, we have some chickens and, and we had some rabbits we don't anymore. And, you know, we grow a little garden and stuff. And, um, my dad is a real gardener in the family. Um, and I'm trying desperately to learn from him some. But, you know, it, I think it's important to, you know, besides the storage food, you know, we're able to have the chickens to produce eggs. And, you know, you can do a lot of things with eggs. You know, um, I don't, these aren't really eating chickens, and I can tell you as long as I can go to the grocery store and buy a chicken for $5, I'm not cleaning a chicken. Yeah, I understand. Uh, yeah. You, could, you could make, there was an old joke, it was called chicken on the run soup. And that's where you get a great big pot of boiling water like a witch's cauldron over the pot. And you throw celery and carrots and everything in there, and you get it all boiling. And then you take your chicken, and you let him run across the pot. And if he gets across the other side, he's flavored it, you eat it. And when he slows down enough, he falls in the pot. You boil him, yank him out, pull the, the, the feathers off, and throw him back in there, and you have chicken soup. And that's how you decide when you're going to uh, finally uh, take the chicken from uh, laying hen to chicken soup hen. But I know what you mean, especially some of those older birds. I mean, if you're not growing them for me, they're not really a, a good eating uh, animal anyway. They're kind of tough, but... The egg's a complete protein source. And um, you, you guys keep probably a small flock, but you guys have eggs often, frequently. I mean, I'm sure there's times a year where, you know, they kind of go off laying for a while. But, I mean, would you say you get a pretty good supply out of them? Yeah, we get we get probably, um, I think we have 13 chickens right now. Um, and, and we probably average, you know, eight eggs a day or something like that. So, um, yeah, we eat quite a few um, but we give a lot away too. I was going to say eight eggs a day is more than the average household could ever hope to use. I mean, you feed some to the dog and still be giving them to the neighbors. And is that have you see? This is what I found with uh, we don't have chickens right now because my wife's infinitely wise and said, Jack, we have so much stuff to move because I've got a pending move coming. We don't need to move chickens too, and no one who buys your house is going to want chickens. So I've put that one off. But the gardening, all the homesteading activities dehydrating food, uh, growing food, chicken eggs, whatever it is, when you give those to neighbors, those are like great conversation starters, and you talk about our responsibility to spread the gospel of prepping. It's like an easy way to do that, right? That's absolutely true. I mean, have you found like some of the people you give eggs to start asking you about your chickens and why you have them and stuff like that? A, a lot of times they do, and, you know, they, they ask, you know, well, can I do this? And I go, well, sure. You know, I said, you know, you probably only need three or four chickens. They don't make a lot of noise. They're not, you know, they're not a problem. Um, you know, and, and everybody will ask me, well, what about a rooster? And I go, well, you don't need a rooster. And they go, well, how do you get eggs without a rooster? I said, getting eggs is easy, but you can't get baby chickens without a rooster. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of people, I haven't talked about chickens on the show for a long time, mainly because I don't want to rub into myself. In fact, I can't have them yet, but that's something I think maybe a lot of listeners aren't aware of. You don't need a rooster to have a flock of chickens. And maybe you can tell me this, because when I had them as a kid with my grandparents and all, we always had roosters, so I never had this issue. I've been told that if you don't have a rooster in your flock, one of the hens will kind of become like a dominant hen 
and, and lay very little or not at all and almost assume that role to a degree because it's missing there? Um, you know, Jack, that's something I really don't know about. Um, okay. I, I have seen, though, you know, there's definitely a pecking order with the chickens. And one of them will definitely make sure that she gets to eat before the other ones do. <laughs> what do you, you, you feed your birds just regular feed, or do you, do you feed them um, like scraps? Or we we mostly we mostly feed them scraps from the chick from the kitchen, and um, and then we'll you know we'll buy a bag of of laying pellets um, and feed them that some. But but mostly they just eat scraps. You know, and when I'm, when I'm hearing folks, and the reason I've kind of taken Dave in this different direction today is all of this stuff is woven into pieces and components of the way the people in his book actually get through. So I don't think that, like, again, we said earlier, the individual characters aren't representation of anybody. It's certainly not an autobiographical book because David hasn't ever lived in a world where the lights went out and stayed out for over a year. But all of these life experiences have been woven in there, and that's why I think it's such a great book because it's actually drawn from real world experience, and then going, well, how would I use this experience, kind of in a in, in a worst case scenario? So, kind of you know, wrapping things up in fruition. People want to get a copy of Life's Out, the book. How do they do that, Dave? Um, they could go to my website, lifesoutthebook.com, and that has links to get to um, to, to either buy signed books from us. Or they can go to Amazon if they're more comfortable getting it off of Amazon. There's also a Kindle version available um, off of Amazon um, if people like, um, you know, the Kindle version. And then um, I think somebody is going to give away five books over the next week or something, aren't they? Yeah, I was holding that till the end. You want to tell folks what we're going to do with that? And they're not just any books. You're going you're gonna to do a little bit of uh, artwork on them before you give them away, right? Yes, yes. So we're going to give away a a signed and numbered copy of Lights Out starting today, one a day for the next week. Yeah, and here's how I'm going to do this, folks. Um, I'm going to let, first of all, whether you're part of the, uh, if you've signed up for the contest or not, I'm going to make this a free-for-all. Anybody can try to win a copy of the book. We're going to do one a day, and we're going to do one each day for the next four days. So that'll be one Friday, and then uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday next week. Today, the code word's going to be real simple. Uh, there are other days I'm going to send you to Dave's website and make you dig the code word out. But today, the, the code word's going to be lights out. So the way that you play is you send me an email. In the subject line, you put just the words lights out. Don't put anything else in the subject line or you're going to get filtered into the wrong box and you're not going to be able to play. And uh, you just send that in and we'll pick one random person out of there to receive a copy, and you need to give me your name and your mailing address so I don't have to try to track people down, your spam filter blocks it or something like that. I'm going to pass that on to Dave. He's going to mail you a book, and then we're going to get rid of it, and we'll, we'll never uh, share your information with anybody. Anybody that loses, at the end of the day, I delete all those emails, and I don't bother to read where you're from. So if you don't send me your shipping address, I'll pick somebody else because I've had too many times where we've done contests where I send people an email and say you've won and I never hear back from them and after two or three days I give their prize to someone else and then they show up and they want it. So you got to include that. But the code word 
Life's out in the subject line. Send that in. And this is what I'm going to do because uh, I told Dave it's great when we give away multiple prizes. We get more response. So in addition to one free copy of Life's Out, I'm going to give the winner a free uh, member support brigade. I'm going to give away two additional free one-year memberships to the support brigade. If you're an existing member, you can extend your membership. You can do it as a gift. If you don't have a membership, you get that free. So Play today, send an email in, lights out in the subject line. We'll pick one winner and uh, have Dave send you an autographed copy of the book. And uh, two folks will win Member Support Brigade. Tune in tomorrow, and I'll tell you how to get the code word for tomorrow. We'll keep doing that till Wednesday. So one copy of Lights Out every day uh, and autographed at that. So, Dave, I really appreciate you doing that for the audience. Well, I'm just happy to do it. You know, um, I've been blessed with a lot of help. Over the years with this book, you know, a lot of people have stepped up and, you know, gave me ideas or, or gave me encouragement when I needed it. You know, um, it just, you know, the, the list is so long, it would be impossible to, to go through and, and thank everybody. But, um, you know, sometimes I don't feel like this is so much my book as it is our book. You did receive quite a bit of collaborative help while you were writing it in the forum, right? You had people like, like giving you some ideas and stuff like that. And I, I, I think that's the future of, of, of authorship, honestly, on some levels, because a book written that way has a lot more rounding. And I think, you know, sometimes as a writer, as a writer myself, it's hard to have people maybe nitpick on you. But in the end, when you're open, you kind of find a pathway that leads you to things that maybe you wouldn't have come up with any other way. And I don't know about how you feel about the Internet, but I kind of feel like it's it's made everything collaborative. And if you want to really, and I'd say this for anybody out there that wants to break in as a podcaster or a writer or a blogger or a journalist or anything, the more you give you know, kind of your core of fans some ownership in it, the more loyal they're going to be to you and the more evangelical they're going to be with the work that you've presented. I mean, that's kind of what you've seen, right, Dave? The more the people that were with you from the beginning with this, they're still there and they're telling people about your book today, right? Oh, absolutely. I have, you know, just just so many people that, you know, that are helping me. Um, um, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously you Jack and, you know, you've done a you've done a great job in spreading Spreading the word, you know, you're one of our best evangelists, um, and and I appreciate all your help and just you know people like um, like Melbo from Survival Monkey, and you know people like John Willis from SOE Tactical. He just you know he just rants and raves about the book every chance he gets and tells everybody about it. And so you know, like I said, there's just so many people, and and I wish I had time to. To thank every one of them, but and, and I mean, you mentioned Rawls at the beginning. He's been really good about mentioning you on his blog as well. Even though I guess you would be a competing writer, I mean, it, it's amazing. The more you give, the more people seem to be willing to give back. And you know, the people you're mentioning, like John Willis, he's been a great friend to our show, and uh, you've been a great friend to us. And it seems like this natural community forms, and hopefully, I feel like we're setting a good example for folks that. This is how you got to be in your own lives, folks. You got to be willing to share a little bit of what you have and what you're doing. And I mentioned this earlier. You talk about offset, David, and uh, 
Uh, I had Ron Hood on a, a while ago, and he was talking about the big mistake of letting people know too much about what you're doing. And But the other side of, uh, of it was a guy had seen, like, all his food storage when he was moving into his new place. And, and he said, well, I guess if the, if the it, you know, if it really hits the fan, I know where to come and get food, and I know who to kill to, to feed myself. And Ron says, well, that's too bad. I would have fed you if you didn't say that. And, and I think that... You know, like we said, there, there's a lot of people out there that will help you, whether it's in business, whether it's getting a message out, whether it's if times get tough. If we'll just kind of, sometimes we have to be the ones to take the first step. And I think that you've given people a great tool with Lights Out, David, to take that first step. Because it's easier to share a story than it is to share a technical manual. So, I mean, personally, from the whole community as a whole, I'd like to thank you today for, for, for doing all the work you did to make this book and to give it to people as a tool. And, folks, I don't know if you guys understand this or not, but David gave this away in soft copy for years. I mean, he did all this work, and he gave it away for years. And today, you know, now it's in a book, and it looks like it happened overnight, but it took a tremendous amount of work. So, Dave, from the whole community, thank you. Well, Jack, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it, and I'm just I'm just thankful to, to you know, be part of this. And, um, you know, God's just blessed us, and, and I just hope that it, you know, that it helps to spread the word. Well, folks, with that, I think uh, we'll wrap up. Dave, I want to give you one more chance. You got anything that we left out you want to say or any encouragement for people uh, overall as a whole before we finish up here? You know, um, first of all, th thank you very much. And like I said, I just really want to encourage people, you know, you don't have to give up too much of your OPSEC to really try to get people on board. And um, I have a I have a buddy that works in marketing, and he tells me this this saying, and perhaps it'll help somebody. You know, they say you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. My buddy says the secret is is to make the horse thirsty. Yeah. So if you can get people to start realizing that, hey, you know, they had a winter storm. You know, up in the Northeast, and people didn't have power for three weeks. You know, what would you do if that happened? You know, and you know, you can start some conversations and get people going that way sometimes. I completely agree, and I think it's a great way to do it. Dave, again, thank you uh, for your work, and thank you for being here with us today. With that, folks, we will wrap up today. And this is the Jack Spirico today, along with David Crawford, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Revolution is you.